Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. We pick up our story right after shooting wrapped on the last picture show. Peter Bogdanovich and Sybil Shepard ended their affair, as they had planned. Peter returned to his wife, Polly Platt. They took their two daughters to Arizona to spend Christmas with Peter's mother and sister. Everyone was still grieving the death of Peter's father, Borislav. Sybil went home to Memphis for the holidays. So Peter and Sybil were separated by 1,200 miles. Turns out that wasn't enough. We both missed each other, and Christmas was lonely, and it was just rough. When Peter returned to L.A., he started editing the film, which meant he was spending hours watching Sybil on the screen. What a night. I never thought something like this would happen. The separation didn't last. Sybil flew to L.A. and met Peter at a Holiday Inn in Hollywood. Polly was furious. She threw Peter out of the house. None of this played out as Peter expected. Not at all, nor did I think I would leave Polly. I, I, I just couldn't do anything else. I just wanted to be with Sybil. For a while, Peter and Sybil moved into the Sunset Tower Hotel. It's where Howard Hughes and Frank Sinatra once lived a place that promised privacy to the stars. Meanwhile, Peter's career was taking off. The head of Warner Brothers saw an early cut of the last picture show, and he was impressed. So he struck a deal with Peter. In the spring of 1971, before picture show was even released, Peter began developing his next movie with Warner Brothers, one of the big Hollywood studios. He was 31, in love, successful, and working out of a bungalow on the Warner's lot in Burbank the lot where hundreds of movies were shot, from Casablanca to Bullet. John Wayne had an office there. So did Clint Eastwood. And now, so did Peter Bogdanovich. I'm Ben Mankiewicz, and this is season one of The Plot Thickens, a new podcast from Turner Classic Movies. This is episode four. Babe Ruth just bunted. Peter Bogdanovich had been called up to the Hollywood Big Leagues, and the Big Leagues required a big house. So Peter asked Sybil to go find one. So I found the place on Copa de Oro, which at that time, I think it had been originally built for Clark Gable and Case Spreckles. Case Spreckles, by the way, was Gable's last wife. Copa de Oro, the street, was in Bel Air, the kind of neighborhood where every mansion has a pool and there are no sidewalks because... Who needs sidewalks when you can walk the dog in your two-acre backyard? The house, built in 1928, came with a gigantic living room and oversized windows. Peter had an extension built onto the house so his daughters could have their own rooms whenever they came to visit. At first, Peter and Sybil didn't have any furniture, so they put a mattress on the floor and projected classic movies on the wall. It didn't take long for Peter to create his own personal movie theater in the house. I converted the garage into a screening room, of course, and we ran 35-millimeter picture and 16, and we, we ran a lot of pictures because I would call the studio and ask them if they had a print of X, Y, or Z, and if they did, they'd send it over and I'd run it. On Fridays, sometimes I would go and all the cans would be in the front foyer. Sashi Bogdanovich is Peter's youngest daughter. She remembers this routine from weekends and summers at the Bel Air house. And I would see what we would get to watch because he could get movies from the screen, you know, that were out in the movie theaters, which to me was just so cool. (laughs) 
So we watched The Merry Widow a lot with my grandmother. You know, every movie is basically infused for me with family and memories. Peter's other daughter, Antonia, is three years older than Sashi. She says since there was no TV at her father's house, movie nights meant family bonding. We would all quote different movies, you know, when we were kids. My dad did a lot of quoting, especially The Merry Widow by Ernst Lubitsch. When I danced with you, I was thinking only of your millions. And when you took me in your arms. I was following instructions. Yes. Eventually, Peter and Sybil started entertaining and hosting parties. But as has always been the case with Peter, he didn't really connect with many of his contemporaries. Mostly I hung out with the girl I was in love with, which was Sybil at that point. It was Sybil who got Peter to smoke pot for the first time. You know, that was the thing. I mean, I, I didn't inhale with the men I wasn't attracted to. <laughs> did, you, did you inhale with Peter? <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding me? I turned him on the first time. I said, you know, this is, you're going to like this. This is going to be nice. He didn't like this. He loved it. You know, I mean, we can talk about it now. It's it's legal. I just want to point out that Peter went through the entire 1960s, the 60s, without getting high. Because we didn't smoke grass. Neither Polly nor I smoked grass. Peter's lack of interest in drugs or in drinking nearly cost him the chance to make The Last Picture Show. Producers Bob Rafelson and Bert Schneider were not like Peter. They were of the times. They smoked weed, sorry, grass. And I was at a party or something with Bert and Bob. They passed me to join us. I said, no. They thought I'm so square, they didn't know they should do the movie with me because I'm such a square, they thought. And I'm the one who left my wife and <laughs> ran off with Sybil and became a pothead for a minute or two. If you're like me, you are now trying to imagine Peter Bogdanovich high. Enjoy it. Soak in it for a minute as we take a quick break. We'll be right back. Remember the great old days of screwball comedies? Well, they're back. In August of 1971, Peter began shooting What's Up, Doc, for Warner Brothers. The studio could afford elaborate behind-the-scenes videos like this one. Hello, I'm Peter Bogdanovich. It featured Peter, 32 years old, in the director's chair. This little picture we're making today is um, called What's Up, Doc? But this was no little picture. What's Up, Doc had a big budget, and big stars. And this is Ryan O'Neill. Do you remember him from Love Story? And uh, Peyton Place. Peyton Place and uh, also a Warner Brothers. Barbara Streisand over here. You remember her from Funny Face? <laughs> uh, excuse me, Funny Girl. Streisand. Yes, Barbara Streisand, as big a household name as there was in 1972. But what's crazy is that Peter was such a sensation, the focus of the video wasn't Barbara Streisand. It was Peter. Now this movie fan is a successful director and for the first time is trying to make a movie like the ones he used to laugh at when he went to the neighborhood picture show. There's a moment in the video where Peter and Ryan O'Neill are sitting at a piano. Peter is playing Barbara's part, singing as time goes by, which she does in the film. You must remember this. C minor seventh. A kiss is still a kiss. At one point, Peter lies on the piano like a seductive nightclub singer. Moments later, he leans in to kiss Ryan O'Neill, and they fall off the piano bench laughing. You can hear the crew laugh, too. Everybody was having a blast. Though Peter and Polly were newly separated, he asked her to join him on What's Up, Doc, as the production designer, and she agreed. You can catch a few glimpses of Polly in the video, both times, she is next to Peter, laughing. Which, I know, seems like madness. Why would Polly agree to work with Peter in the middle of such an awful breakup? 
Years later, Polly explained that she wanted to get into the union, the art director's guild, and doing a Barbara Streisand picture could make it happen. Turns out she was right. She became the first female production designer to get her union card. But looking at the way Polly looked at Peter, it was likely more than that. Polly believed the affair with Sybil would eventually end, that it was nothing more than a typical indulgence of a big Hollywood director. So Polly agreed to work on the film with one condition, no Sybil. She couldn't come to the set. Peter hired Frank Marshall again, giving him more responsibility this time. So Peter needed a new assistant. He hired Neil Canton, a young New Yorker who had never worked in movies before. Hello, this is Neil Canton. We called Neil to discuss his time with Peter. Since then, he's become a producer of movies like Back to the Future. But on What's Up, Doc, his first job in the business, he followed Peter around with the script. Because in his script, he had little notes and little sort of uh, stick figure kind of drawings of how he envisioned the scene to go. And he was always saying, I need my script. Where's my script? Peter didn't treat Neil like a gopher. He was kind to him. They talked movies. Every morning, Neil showed up at Peter's house in Bel Air and drove him to the set in Burbank. And so I had my little Volkswagen, and, you know, whenever you hit a bump in the road, the radio comes out. Soon, the Volkswagen stayed in Peter's driveway, and Neil drove them both in Peter's new Rolls Royce. Smoother ride, sturdier radio. Peter would come out of the house still eating breakfast, cottage cheese and yogurt, and hop in the passenger seat of the Rolls next to Neil. On the drive, Peter would eat, and they'd talk about the day's shoot and compare notes. At the end of the day, Neil would drive Peter home. And then it got to a point where Peter said to me, you know, take the Rolls Royce. Just leave your Volkswagen at his, at his house. He said, just drive the Rolls Royce home. And then, you know, come back in the morning with the Rolls Royce. And, and I would say... But I don't, I don't have a parking garage. I park on the street. And I said, you know, maybe I sh- it's not the best place to leave this car. And he said, oh, don't worry about it. But Neil did worry, so much so that the Rolls-Royce arrangement didn't last. Neil was just too nervous something might happen to the car. 467, take three. It was Polly's idea to set What's Up Doc in San Francisco, where the hills were perfect for a chase scene Peter had in mind. It's become a famous movie moment, with Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill hurtling down a steep hill, pedaling one of those rickshaws right through the center of a Chinatown parade. Louie, I can't see! Well, there's not much to see, actually. We're inside a Chinese dragon. Neil, who spent as much time as anyone with Peter, recognized the value of that collaboration with Polly. There's no question Peter was the director and Polly was the designer, but they spent a lot of time just talking about the movie and talking about the cast and all that. What's Up, Doc? was a box office hit, pulling in $66 million, a fortune in 1972. While Peter and Sybil were making their home in Bel Air, Polly was assembling her version of a family in the Hollywood Hills, where she lived with Antonia and Sashi. They had plenty of room, so Polly invited Neil Canton and Frank Marshall to move in. They lived with Polly and the girls for the next two years. There were times when Frank and Neil felt stuck in the middle, working for Peter and living with Polly. They saw all the sadness that comes with a slow-motion divorce. He had fallen in love, you know, and, and that was hard, and I, I'm sure he had a certain amount of guilt about it, you know, because he had two young girls. During the day, Peter would ask Neil questions about his own daughters. When he went over, he would, you know, read them a story and talk them in, but, you know, like, what were they doing during the day? Did they seem happy? Did they ever mention him? Or, you know, that kind of stuff. Peter may have been on a creative and professional high, but personally, he was suffering. It was painful to be separated from his two young kids. After the success of What's Up, Doc, Peter formed a production company with Francis Ford Coppola and William Friedkin, two directors also on their way up in Hollywood. Coppola was fresh off The Godfather, while Friedkin had just won the Best Director Oscar for The French Connection. One of the men Friedkin beat that year was Peter, nominated for The Last Picture Show. The three partnered with Paramount and set up The Director's Company, 
It was a sweet deal. They could each make any film they wanted with complete creative freedom, as long as the budget came in under $3 million. Peter decided to make Paper Moon. This is the Peter Bogdanovich production, Paper Moon. Or as P.T. Barnum put it, there's a sucker born every minute. The story came from a novel, a bestseller called Addie Prey. Kansas, 1936. Out of the darkest days of the Depression comes the adventures of two unlikely con artists, Mose Prey and his companion, Addie Loggins. When Paramount sent Peter the script, he wasn't sold. After two hits, he wasn't sure this was the right follow-up. So he went to someone whose professional advice he could always trust. And I said, Polly, read this script and tell me what you think why you think I should or shouldn't do it. And just have, don't tell me what you think. So she read it, and she said, well, she said, it needs work, the script needs work, but you've got two daughters, I think you might be interested to direct a girl, and I know who could play it, who? Tatum O'Neill. I said, oh, really? Tatum is Ryan O'Neill's daughter, just eight years old at the time. Peter liked her for the role of Addie. She had a gutsy, fearless quality that fit Addie's streetwise character. I heard you through the door talking that man. It's my money you got, and I want it. If Tatum was Addie, then it was an easy jump to have Ryan O'Neill play Mose, the con artist who shows Addie the ropes. Well, I ain't your pa, so just get that out of your head. I don't care what those neighbor ladies said. I look like you With the two leads cast, Peter focused on the title. At the time, it was still called Addie Prey. Peter hated it. So I'm looking at the list of songs that were popular in the early 30s. And one of them was, It's Only a Paper Moon. I like the sound of Paper Moon. Those two words jumped out at me. I played the song, and the song worked in terms of the relationship. It's only a paper moon, or whatever the line is. Uh, it's only a canvas sky. It's a great song. Those lyrics, It's Only a Paper Moon, jumped out at him as a perfect solution. So... I called Orson, who was in Rome, cutting a picture, cutting something. And I said, uh, Orson, you got a minute? No, I'm cutting. What do you want? I said, um, what do you think of this title? Paper Moon. It was a short pause. Then he said, that title is so good, you don't even need to make the picture. Just release the title. <laughs> Peter got the title he wanted. And when Paper Moon went into production... Peter brought the team back together. Once again, Polly, his estranged wife, came aboard as the production designer. Frank Marshall returned, this time as an associate producer, and Neil Canton was back as Peter's assistant. At this point, they were making a movie a year. Just like the last picture show, Peter decided to shoot Paper Moon in black and white. It felt like it fit the story. Con artists selling Bibles during the Depression. They shot in Kansas and Missouri, and it wasn't easy. Paper Moon is a road picture with the two main characters driving throughout the Midwest, running a Bible scam. And remember, Tatum O'Neill was an eight-year-old kid making her first movie. She had to be directed. Like, every gesture had to be directed. I mean, every, everything had to be directed, but she was good when she did it. Shooting one key scene frayed everyone's nerves. The scene was an argument between Mose. Ryan O'Neill, and Addie, his daughter Tatum. And then they make up and they end up stronger together than, than they were before the fight started. It's a very important scene. It binds them together. The scene unfolds as they're driving down a dusty Kansas road in a 1930s convertible. I wanted to do it in one shot without a cut. Ryan wasn't driving, they were pulling the car. Problem was, the only place they could turn around with that big camera pulling the car was two miles down a narrow road. So they'd begin shooting, driving down the road, but every time Tatum flubbed a line, even if it came three seconds into the shot, they had to drive all the way down the road, two miles, turn around, drive back up, turn around again, and start the next take. Ryan has much more dialogue in the scene, but Tatum had to deliver her lines while doing other things. Tatum had all the business. She had to put the cigar box down, open the map. Ryan just had to drive. Could you blame me for it? If we were running out of Bibles, you should have told me we were running out of Bibles. Well, we're running out of Bibles. Well, then we got to get new ones. And let's get new 
ones. We can pick some up in Great Bend. Great Bend's the other one. Well, we gotta have Bibles, don't we? We did it 25 times the first day and didn't get it once. 25 times we didn't get it. We finally, we, we came back about two days later because we had rain, and we did it 15 times and we finally got it. And you know something? I think that's why she got the Oscar, because everybody can see that she's doing it. Tatum O'Neill became the youngest winner in the history of the Academy Awards when she won for Best Supporting Actress in 1974. All I really want to thank is my director, Peter Bogdanovich, and my father. Thank you. At the time, Peter complained in the press that she should have been nominated in the lead actress category, since she was in basically every scene of the movie. Frank Marshall saw Peter and Polly's relationship hit a new low on the Paper Moon shoot. Gone was Polly's sadness about the affair with Sybil. In its place came anger. She grew further and further away from Peter, and I think as it set in that this was not going to go away, she got madder and madder. Peter and Polly argued in front of the crew, especially when Peter felt like she challenged his authority. Polly again insisted Sybil couldn't come to the set. So when Sybil visited, she stayed with Peter at a separate hotel, away from the crew. Peter, meanwhile, had his own grievances with Polly. Well, she was having an affair with the prop man. But she didn't tell me that, and I didn't know it until about halfway through. Polly later married the prop master, Tony Wade. And somebody told me that she was having an affair, which I did. I was perfectly all right for her to have an affair, but it pissed me off that Sybil couldn't come on the set even while she's having an affair. Their hurt feelings, their mutual resentment, it all piled up. It just deteriorated until we couldn't work together anymore, which was a pity because she was a hell of a good collaborator. Had good ideas and was fun to work with, but about that it fell apart. Polly and Peter divorced in 1973, the year Paper Moon hit theaters. Polly got custody of their two daughters. They would stay with Peter for summers and on school breaks. They had been together for nearly 10 years and had made four pictures together, all good ones. They never worked together again. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance, an emergency repair, or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Paper Moon was another box office hit for Peter. Three in a row. Sprinkled among the glowing reviews were just a couple of lackluster ones. To Hollywood, though, Peter Bogdanovich was a bona fide hit maker. Paper Moon cost $2.4 million to make. It would eventually take in more than $30 million at the box office. Peter had become a successful Hollywood filmmaker and a rich one. I had 22% of the profits. I made quite a lot of money on that one. And I had a piece of dock and, and a piece of paper moon. And um, it was just nice not having to worry about money. Peter was generous with his money, especially when it came to Orson Welles. Orson needed a place to stay when he was in Los Angeles. He was cutting some footage for his film, The Other Side of the Wind. It was a natural fit. Peter had built an editing facility at the house in Bel Air. Plus, Peter was still working on the book about Orson. So, on and off for the next two years, 
Orson Welles lived with Peter and Sybil. One of my favorite images of him is him sort of tiptoeing through my office to get to the TV room. And as he's going through, he says, Dick Van Dyke is on. The Dick Van Dyke show. <laughs> he loved Dick Van Dyke. Orson didn't merely take a spare room. He essentially had his own wing, bedroom, bathroom, and TV room. And, uh, and he branched out and used the dining room because <laughs> he liked the table. It was so big. Peter liked having him there. I mean, of course he did. How could a film lover like Peter not enjoy having Orson Welles in his home? He had a great sense of humor. You could hear his laugh bouncing off the sky. It was so strong and loud and... And also, he had a habit of really laughing to such a degree that you, you didn't, you know, if you're sitting opposite him, you don't want to stop laughing. He just goes on and on and on. Jesus, Orson, okay. <laughs> House guest or not, Orson generally lived by Orson's rules, and as Sybil remembers, moved at Orson's pace. And I know that I was ta- instructed by Peter, though, that when I never to wake Orson up because, you know, he was watching TV. He liked to watch TV. You know, you never knew when he was going to be awake. The don't wake Orson rule was put to the test one day when Sybil walked past Orson's room and smelled smoke. Peter says she yelled out. Orson, are you all right? I smell something burning. I would like a little privacy, please. I, I smell something burning. Privacy, please. Turns out he had, was smoking a cigar and he put, his, put the cigar in his pocket while it was still lit. The burning cigar was in the pocket of Orson's bathrobe, and he fell asleep. And uh, it caught on fire, so he threw it into the bathtub, and he missed the bathtub and hit the carpet, and some of that burned. (laughs) All of this happened behind closed doors. The housekeeper discovered the charred robe and carpet hours later. The next day, Orson gave Sybil the perfect gift for when you nearly burn down someone's house, a beautiful hardback book on opera. And inside, he had drawn a picture of a house burning and a, and a ladybug in the foreground screaming. And it said underneath, she wrote, Ladybug, ladybug, fly away home. Your house is on fire, and so is your house guest. Love, Orson. <laughs> that, that was that. Sybil, who is a huge opera fan, still has the book. Peter's daughters also have memories of Orson living at the house. Peter and Polly named Sashi after Orson, her middle name, as Wells. But according to Sashi, that shared name failed to create a bond. He didn't like children. (laughs) So, you know, I got that vibe from him. Sometimes Orson and the girls had the same pursuits, namely Haagen-Dazs ice cream. That was my father's favorite and our favorite. So one day I went in there, all the ice cream was gone. And Orson had eaten it. And... He was always saying to my dad and the maids, you know, I could hear him like, get the, we need more ice cream, we need more of this. <laughs> Sashi decided to file a complaint. She walked outside of Peter's office, gathering up her courage. So I went in there and I was like, Dad, you know, there's no more ice cream. Orson ate all of the ice cream. And he said, well, he's a great director. <laughs> When Peter talks about Orson, you can hear the energy in his voice. Somebody ate all the ice cream. He remembers the good times as if they happened last weekend. You had to love him, you know. Like the time they were working together on a movie Orson was making, The Other Side of the Wind. Peter plays a young director in the film. Orson hired Frank Marshall to help produce. During the back half of a long day, Frank came to Orson on set. He said, Orson, you know, the crew's been here since 7. They'd like to have some lunch. All right, I'm not hungry. But if the crew has to eat, let them go to lunch. (laughs) I'm not hungry. I'll stay here. I'll stay with you, Orson. I'm not hungry either. Fine. Peter and I will stay here while the crew goes to lunch. (laughs) Like it was a big deal. So everybody left. And we were alone for about 10 minutes. And then Orson turns to me and says, Are you hungry? Because I'm absolutely starving. (laughs) I said, I could eat. So we go into the uh, kitchen. And, uh top of the refrigerator was this gigantic, really economy-sized, family-sized bag of Fritos, which Orson immediately picked up, ripped off the top of it, and poured the contents onto the 
kitchen table, sat down, took a big handful, shoved them in his mouth, and sat there chewing. <laughs> so I did the same thing, and we both sit there chewing and uh, looking at each other, and we were hungry. And then after a bit, he says, you know, you don't gain weight if nobody sees you eating. <laughs> I broke up. These were the good times with Orson, but there are other memories too, more painful ones, that will be harder for Peter to revisit. Peter's next film for the director's company was an unusual choice. Last year, Peter Bogdanovich gave you the moon. A period piece based on the 19th century novella by Henry James. Peter Bogdanovich has made a movie in color. Daisy Miller, starring Sybil Shepard. Sybil Shepard, you remember her from The Heartbreak Kid? And uh, The Last Picture Show? Here we go, ready? ready. And action! His divorce from Polly Final, Peter was eager to work with Sybil again. He'd made two movies since Last Picture Show, and Sybil wasn't in either of them. Daisy Miller brought Peter's love life and work life together. It's one of the greatest adaptations of Henry James' work, and it was Orson who told Peter about Daisy Miller and said either you or I should direct this, and Peter directed it. Sybil plays the lead, Daisy. I know ever so many people, and they're all so charming. A carefree, flirtatious American girl on her first trip abroad. It touched me. I thought it was a touching story. And I had come to realize by then already that one of the biggest problems in the world was the battle of the sexes. Because men didn't understand women, and women did understand men, but didn't help them sometimes. (laughs) You're funny. Am I? Frank Marshall returned to make his fifth movie with Peter in six years. But this time... They were a long way from rural Texas and the middle of Kansas. Daisy Miller shot in Rome. Yeah, I loved Daisy Miller. I went over and I hired an entire Italian crew, DP, production designer, and it was incredible. The costume designer was very famous and did all those wonderful costumes. Daisy Miller is ultimately a quality film. It's beautiful, lavish sets and costumes. It's hard to imagine in today's world of massive budgets, but it cost just $2.2 million. It was, in every way, a period piece, coming a few years before modern audiences started embracing them. The Merchant Ivory films that came out later had not come out yet, so nobody was ready for this sudden departure of me going into the 19th century. Among those not ready for Peter's sudden thematic shift was Frank Yablons, head of Paramount Studios. After an early screening of Daisy Miller, Peter went up to Yablons. I said, how'd you like the picture? He said, it's all right. I said, that's it? That's all you got to say? He said, what do you want me to say? You're Babe Ruth and you just bunted. Daisy Miller was a tough sell with audiences. It wasn't a picture that they ran to see. And then that threw me a bit. And that is what gave the studios pause because I had a flop. This was Peter's first flop after three huge hits in a row. It didn't feel good. Though it bombed at the box office, Daisy Miller got some good reviews, including from the New York Times. Other critics were tougher. And some used the film's failure to take a bite out of Hollywood's It Couple. Peter and Sybil were on the May 13th cover of People magazine. So happy together. That was the headline. Nine days later, Daisy Miller opened in New York. Sybil took the brunt of the critical wrath. When she and I talked, she mentioned a single phrase from one review in particular. Daisy Miller came out and... I wish I could remember the name of the critic, said, Sybil, back to your blue jeans. It stung, clearly. It implied that Sybil couldn't run in sophisticated circles, Peter's circles. Of course, critics have always been tough, but reading the Daisy Miller reviews now, there was a meanness, an edge to some of the criticism. 
and it was the beginning of a trend from critics and from inside Hollywood. Peter and Sybil were fair game. Well, you know, it's funny. It was impossible to open a newspaper or a magazine in the mid-'70s without reading something nasty about Sybil and me. The issue of People magazine broke new ground. On the cover were these words in quotes, marriage is a chilling thought. Peter and I, we were the first unmarried couple on the cover of People magazine. <gasps> oh, horrors. They hated us. I've seen some photographs of us, and I can see why. Because we both looked very attractive, and we were not shy. The photo spread inside shows them in front of their home, Sybil playfully hugging Peter from behind. There's another shot of them singing at their piano and on the set of Daisy Miller. The story generated the exact opposite of admiration. People hated them. Frank Marshall doesn't mince words. Yeah, I mean, you know, here's this instant success. Uh, and they were having a great time, you know, and they had this beautiful house and in Bel Air, and I think people just were jealous of them. And when that starts to happen, they knock you off the top of the mountain pretty quickly. Shortly after the People magazine spread, Peter got a call from his friend, Cary Grant. He says, Peter, will you, for Christ's sake, stop telling people you're happy and stop telling them you're in love? Why, Cary? Because they're not happy and they're not in love. I thought all the world loves a lover. No, don't you believe it. Let me tell you something, Peter. People do not like beautiful people. Well, that was a staggering remark. Do you think, it sounds like you do, that some of the disdain for you two, you brought on Oh, yeah, we did, we did. We weren't weren't modest. Um, Yeah, I think we did, yeah. After Daisy Miller, the director's company dissolved and Peter moved on to his next project. For Christmas, Sybil gave Peter a book of songs by Cole Porter, the composer and songwriter. Peter was inspired to try something even riskier and more ambitious than Daisy Miller. He decided to make a musical, a tribute to the movie musicals of the 1930s. Peter wrote the script alone. That was a first for him. He used Cole Porter songs to create a story about the romantic adventures of two high-society couples. He called it At Long Last Love, after one of Porter's songs. Is it the ivy touch with a glove? Or is it at long last love? As if making an old-fashioned musical in the mid-70s wasn't hard enough, Peter then made another bold choice. He decided to record the actors singing Porter's songs live. That's how musicals were produced early in Hollywood's golden age. Hitting the right notes while doing the business of acting for the camera is obviously extremely challenging, even for professional singers and dancers. But that's not who Peter cast. Madeline Kahn, who was in both What's Up Doc and Paper Moon, had some Broadway experience, but the leads in At Long Last Love were Sybil Shepard and Burt Reynolds. What thing? Thing on your lip. No. Burt was a huge star at the time, and he also knew a little something about regrettable magazine covers. Two years before Peter and Sybil graced the cover of People, Burt was Cosmopolitan's first ever male centerfold. He was nude, his left arm strategically covering what needed to be covered. In 1974, Burt was eager to fulfill a dream and make a musical. Problem was, he wasn't much of a singer. But the former Florida State halfback still gave it the old college try. This is Burt singing, You're the Top. I'm a lazy lout that is just about to stop. But a baby, I'm the bottom, you're the top. Sybil, on the other hand, always hoped she'd become a singer. And Peter thought at long last love would launch her career. Well, be that as it may, you're the top. You're Mahatma Gandhi, you're the top, you're Napoleon Brandy. Filming started in August of 74. All right, action. The live recording required take after take, straining the actor's vocal cords. Peter and his set decorator fought about the Art Deco sets. This was Peter's second movie without Polly, 
and he was struggling to develop a creative language with someone new. But for Peter's daughters, the shoot was exciting. Sashi, who was only four at the time, remembers feeling special on set. So we always got to sit in his chairs and, you know, he was like, oh, my daughters are here. And he would say things about us. And my dad, I think for me, was the star. How was that, Bobby? I'd like it to be faster. He's always been very funny. And so on set, he is like a stand-up comedian, basically. It's like... He had this sort of, like, sun shining on him. And everybody loved him, and he always wore weird stuff on set, you know, like John Ford did. So he wore pajama bottoms and a straw hat. Antonia was seven and remembers Peter casting her and Sashi to be in a scene at the end of At Long Last Love. They were part of the chorus. The most exciting part for me was we got to wear these, like, cute little you know, costumes that were like, oh my God, I get to play dress up. Got to wear like, you know, patent leather shoes or whatever. And then we were in the background singing. That was super fun. And of course there's a shot of me picking my nose. If you watch me, because everybody would make fun of me. They're like, oh, you were picking your nose. And then, you know, like that was a running joke for a couple of years. Like that was the cut he used, you know, me picking my nose. Long Last Love came out in March of 1975. Peter says the studio, 20th Century Fox, rushed the release. The musical is very hard because you have to find out the balance between dialogue scenes and music is, is, is the trick. And it's difficult to find that out unless you preview it. We had two previews and then we opened. And it was worse than that. We had a preview that it was disastrous. Everybody left. At Long Last Love came out, and I think it was Gene Shallot came on the Today Show holding a sign that said bomb. I don't know if he was the one that said Sybil Shepherd can't walk or talk, much less sing. The reviews for At Long Last Love are some of the worst in modern film history. Frank Rich in the New York Times called it the most perverse movie musical ever made. The Village Voice headline was at long last turkey. That's not even clever. Later, Peter told a biographer it was the most personal film he'd made at that point. He described it as a musical about his divorce and the difficulty of choosing between two women. Frank Marshall thought Peter could have benefited from more input from others, in particular, one person. Looking back now on it, I do think I miss Polly. I do think there was whatever the magic sauce was that was there and it's it's hard to quantify but I think there was a missing component and we were on this trajectory that um, that was different and I mean the, the idea for it long last love was a good one you know uh, tell a story with 10 or 12 Cole Porter songs as a musical that's a good idea very I think the mistake was having Normal people sing and dance. People, you know, that element, that theory did not work. At Long Last Love closed after a few weeks, taking in roughly $2 million at the box office. It didn't even recover the advertising costs. A new version of the film exists today. The movie had been recut without Peter's input by a Fox studio editor, a Cole Porter fan. And it was better. Even Peter thought so. For maybe the first time in Hollywood history, a director liked the recut more than his own version. As a result, the movie is being reevaluated. In 2018, The New Yorker called it Long Last Love a blazingly original masterwork. But in 1975, it was Peter's second consecutive flop and his second flop with Sybil Shepard in a leading role. He would have a difficult time selling her as his leading lady going forward. Peter was 36 years old and sensing that his career was spiraling downward, it left him bewildered. When all was said and done, I compromised. I, I didn't, it wasn't exactly the way I wanted it. I knew it wasn't quite right, but I didn't know what to do to fix it. The time of the Nickelodeon is over. A new day has dawned. The epoch of the On paper, Peter's next film, called Nickelodeon, was ideal material for him. It was a story about the early days of Hollywood, 
But if there was writing on the wall, Peter misread it. He completely rewrote the script, adding a leading role for Sybil as a silent movie star. This time, the studio wasn't having it. They said, we don't want Sybil. Because we'd had two flops, you know. And they thought I was, she destroyed me is what they thought. And so we had written the thing for Sybil to play it. And she suggested Jane Hitchcock, who was a model that she'd worked with. And Jane was very good. She was a very silent movie girl, but she had no threat. She wasn't dangerous. Sybil was dangerous. David Beagleman, who ran Columbia Pictures, nixed Peter's other casting choices as well. And he wouldn't let Peter shoot in black and white either. He said, no way. I'd only had two hits in the 70s in black and white, and he still said, no way. It's too expensive to be in black and white. What a stupid remark. So Orson told me not to make the picture. He said, don't make it if it's just a campaign black and white. And I said, well, he said, just don't do it. He was right. Peter ignored Orson's advice and made the movie anyway. As the pressure from two straight failures mounted, Neil Canton worked on Nickelodeon, once again as Peter's assistant. But I could see where um, there was a certain pressure. He had lost some of that, you know, Hollywood power kind of. And he could feel that he wanted this movie to take him back to where he was. Peter was tense during the shoot. He argued with one of his leads, Burt Reynolds, and yelled at the crew for playing loud music at lunch. Some of Nickelodeon was shot in Northern California, and that's where Peter did something he had never done before. He directed from horseback. I was like, oh wow, Peter's riding a horse. When did that happen? Forget when that happened. How did that work? Well, I think he would get off the horse when he actually had to direct. He could get set up from being on the horse, and then he would go for a ride, gallop around, and, and then, you know, the crew would be putting everything together, and, and he'd come back, and they'd bring the actors out. I hate horses. How come we didn't come out here in the damn truck? Because it couldn't cross this pass. Peter would then get off the horse and direct the actors' performances face-to-face. Directing from horseback made Neil Canton's job different. Obviously, I couldn't follow him around with the screenplay when he was on a horse. I had to wait for him to dismount. Did you ride on a horse in that movie, direct from the horseback? Yeah. Yeah, I did, actually, for a little while. Uh, it, it irritated the actors enormously, <laughs> which is one of the reasons I did it. <laughs> Because it wasn't the right cast. That was part of the problem. I wanted John Ritter and uh, Jeff Bridges to play the leads. And it was Burt Reynolds and Ryan O'Neill. They were big stars, and that's why they got the I didn't really... They were good, but I didn't want to use them. I wanted to use a younger cast. The Nickelodeon budget ballooned, and the overages were deducted from Peter's salary. While Hollywood was waiting to see if he would redeem himself or continue to crash and burn, Peter worked long hours editing the film. All of it under intense pressure. Nickelodeon did not change Peter's fortunes. Audiences stayed away, and the critics, they sharpened their knives for another serving. A New York Times headline read, is this Bogdanovich's last picture show? It's an understatement to call this an awful time for Peter and Sybil. They saw what was happening. They saw the pleasure people were taking in their downfall. Billy Wilder, one of the finest filmmakers to emerge out of Hollywood's golden age, the writer-director of Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard, and The Apartment, summed up the mood in town about this turn of events in Peter's life. There is a canard that Hollywood is full of bitterness and dissension, envy and hostility, said Wilder. It's just not true. I've lived here for 40 years, and I can tell you that it took one simple event to bring all the factions together. A flop by Peter Bogdanovich. Champagne corks were popping, flags were waving. The guru had laid an egg, and Hollywood was delighted. <sighs> what a prick. In an effort to escape, Peter and Sybil left town for long stretches of time. They traveled the world and Peter turned down every script that came his way. After a while, it seemed easier being at the bottom instead of the top. I asked him about it. You said in an interview a few years later, 
Success is much harder to deal with than failure. You can cuddle up to failure. Success is deadly. What does that mean? Well, you know, the vibe when you're successful is rather rough around town. They suck up to you, but at the same time, they hate you. <laughs> it's very weird. Hollywood's a very weird place. On the next episode of The Plot Thickens, Peter tries to figure out what went wrong, and Orson betrays him in front of a late-night television audience. We have a mutual friend, of course, Peter Bogdanovich. That's right. Yes. As a matter of fact, you have me to thank for the fact that you were asked to be in the picture which was probably the least successful of any in your past. I think Orson didn't know what to say. I don't think he wanted to attack me. It just sort of happened, and... I felt like he thought, oh, my God, he might be watching. Angela Carone is our director of podcasts. Our story editors are Joanne Farian and Susan White, editing by Mike Volgaris. Thomas Avery of Tune Welders composed our theme music, mixing by Tim Pelletier and Glenn Matulo. Production support from Yako Friedman, Susanna Zapeda, Julie Batone, Mario Riles, Heather Geltzer, Philip Richards, Ben Holst, DePonker Mazumder, Bailey Tyler, Zara Chowdhury, Jeff Stafford, and Millie DeCherico. Our web team is Josh Lubin, Mike McKenzie, and Matthew Ownby. Special thanks to Scott McGee, Steve Denker, and the Warner Media Podcast Network. TCM's general manager is Paula Shagnon. Our executive producer is Charlie Tavish, who owes his bookie so much money that Charlie Tavish is his alias. Check out our website at tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. It has lists of all the movies we've talked about, Info about each episode, tons of great photos, a lot of cool stuff. Again, that's tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.